Please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes. It's right in the middle of the Bible, like literally right in, uh, in the middle of, of, of all these pages. And uh, it is a short book, only 12 chapters long, and in my Bible it's about five or six pages. Today's sermon is on the topic of work. It's the fourth in a series on the topic of work, and I wanted to preach and teach about what God in the Bible says about work because work is such an important part of our lives. Most of us spend the better part of our week working. Almost all of us get our income from work. We are the 99%, right? So we prioritize our work, and that is not to say that Paid work is the only work that I'm talking about. In fact, a huge amount of our work is not paid. I'm thinking in particular of unpaid work in the home, especially women's work in the home. Everyone knows, even if we don't admit it or think about it or talk about it much and the government doesn't measure it and public policymakers don't really care about it, maintaining a household and raising children is a lot of work. And it takes way more than 40 hours a week, and you don't get paid overtime for it. Young people, too, I'm thinking about my kids, do a lot of unpaid work, not just housework. We call it being in school, right? Studying and learning is work. That is what you are called to do in this season of life. And yet, we don't often talk about work in church. When we come to church, we come to worship and learn, totally appropriate. The things we generally learn about are who God is, what he is like, who is Jesus, what did he do. We learn about the Bible and what it says and what it means. A lot of times we cover a lot of history, redemptive history specifically, the unfolding story of how God is redeeming sinful humanity and rescuing us from ourselves and reconciling us to him. Many times we learn about moral issues, what we should believe and how we should act. We also learn about moral issues of the day, which, of course, sometimes become political issues, how society around us has wrong ideas about how the world works, and the, the counterpoint is the true ideas, the correct worldview that God has revealed to us in his scriptures. All these topics are entirely appropriate. But considering that most of us go to work Monday through Friday, during business hours or during school hours. And many of us, particularly women homemakers, basically moms, simply work all their waking hours. We find ourselves sort of needing to keep in mind the sermon from Sunday all through the week. And then we reflect on it when we're quote-unquote not working, right? There's faith and then there's work. And sometimes people at our workplaces specifically ask us to keep our faith out of the workplace. Can't talk about it. For us Christians, I hope that is not the case. I hope it is the case that our faith and trust and belief in God and His Word permeates every aspect of our existence, including work. Maybe especially work, since we're at work so much. And yet, I can totally recognize that when we need to concentrate on our work, we usually cannot consciously think about the sermon from Sunday. We can't think about the sermon when we are working on a spreadsheet or making sales calls or teaching math or learning math or doing the dishes or delivering packages or any of the other countless things that we do for work. 
Uh, I know almost everyone here and I know, you know what you guys do for jobs and you know, I'm just thinking about all the different things that you know, are very busy and mind-consuming and time-consuming when you're at work. So I, I totally understand that. Right? So the main reason I want to preach on work is because we pastors want to equip you spiritually for the work that you do during the 166 hours between when we leave here and when you come back here next Sunday. Again, our hope is that, you, that your belief in and knowledge of God permeates all of your waking and thinking. Uh, I would hate to think that when you leave this place, uh, you just forget everything you heard here all week until you come back. Right? Realistically, I know that's what happens with some of us, uh, but we also hope that preaching about work, okay, we, pre- we hope that preaching about work will help you put your finger more directly on the issues that you face at work. We pastors, Pastor Matt and I, stand ready to discuss your individual issues when you want to. Uh, Pastor Matt and I talk to a lot of people in the church about work every week. It doesn't just have to be Pastor Matt and me. The better equipped we all are with the knowledge of God's Word, the better we will all be able to uh, help each other process through the issues of life, including work. That's a big reason why we want to gather in church and be together at least once a week, as well as have friends in the church, so you can talk to each other, process life together. Now, what is it that we want to learn about work? In my first sermon back in September, I taught that work was designed by God to be good. We often think of work as being bad, but God designed work to be good. He himself worked in Genesis 1 and 2 to create the universe in six days, including the pinnacle of his creation, humankind. Right? He also rested on the seventh day. God also created humankind to work. So work is ordained by God before the fall of humankind into sin, and therefore work is good. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and that ruined work. It turned good work into toil. The ground was cursed because of our sin, and now it produces thorns and thistles for us. It does that literally, but it also does that metaphorically, of course, in terms of problems at work, issues that you might have in HR, you know, whatever. I mean, could you imagine if there were zero problems at work? Someday it will be like that. But for now, it's not. Thorns and thistles we have to deal with. The fall also means that all of Adam's and Eve's descendants, from Cain and Abel all the way down to us, every human being that has ever lived has been born with a fallen, sinful nature, except one. All except one have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God's standard of holiness. And the wages of sin is death. So speaking of work and earning wages, the wages, what you earn with your sin is death. So that's very bad news because what we deserve is death. What we deserve is eternal, everlasting torment in hell. But God is gracious. So God planned more work, specifically the work of God the Son, who took on a human nature and was born the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, in what we commemorate at Christmas. 
He died on the cross as payment for our sins, right? because the wages of sin is death, and resurrected after three days, showing that God accepted his work and showing that our future resurrection and everlasting life is a promise that will be fulfilled for all who believe. In my second uh, sermon in October, we explored the concept of vocation. Vocation is not just an educational term like vocational school. It is also a theological term that means calling. The theology of vocation is God calling each of us to do particular work and giving us, each of us, gifts and talents to equip us. We learned from several chapters in Exodus about how God, after he brought uh, the Israelites out of slavery into Egypt, empowered them with talent and ability, and in particular, to a couple of Israelite artisans, he gave specific skills. He commanded them to make and build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all of the tools of worship that Israel was commanded to use. They were called to that work. They were gifted for that work. They accomplished that work, and they accomplished that work to the letter, to the very letter of God's instructions. In my third sermon last month, I explored two errors that, can, that we can make in our attitude toward work. For some of us, work is the most important thing that we do, right? And we will sacrifice everything else in order to prioritize our work. That is idolatry, worshiping an idol, trusting in something else that's created rather than the creator himself for our hope and happiness, our significance, and our security, idolatry. For others of us, the other error is we don't like work that much, and we only work because we have to. That's sort of the opposite error of idolatry, uh, more like slacking off or maybe not living up to our potential. But if we're totally honest with ourselves, the root cause of slacking off is very likely also idolatry, right? Just not idolatry of work. Then we went to two letters in the New Testament, Colossians and Ephesians, and we uh, learned that God wants us to work as though we are working directly for Jesus himself and not only for human bosses, right? Or if we are bosses, to treat the people uh, that work for us well because we also have a boss in heaven. To sum up, in my first sermon, we addressed the question, how should we think about work? In my second sermon, I wanted to answer the question, how do we know what work God wants us to do? Right? In the third sermon, the question was, what should be our attitude toward work? Should we be religiously devoted to our work, or should we slack off and go through the motions? If neither of those, then how should we work? Right? Today, we will try to answer the question, what is the point of work? What is the point of work? It often seems kind of pointless, especially, you know, we might as Christians be tempted to think, well, we're all going to die and go to heaven someday anyway, so what is the point of working? Right? There is no better place in the Bible to answer this question than the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book. It is fascinating because for about 95% of it, the writer is convincing us that life is pointless. It's true. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how wise you get. It doesn't matter how much you learn. It doesn't matter how rich you get. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how much land you own or buildings you build. It doesn't matter how much fun you have. It doesn't matter how much good food you eat. 
It doesn't even matter if you're born. In fact, he says that people who are never born are better off than those who are born. Nothing matters because we're all going to die, is what he says. He literally says we're no better than animals. Animals live and die. We live and die. We're going to die and life is pointless. Sermon over. Let's pray. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's a crazy message though, right? Life is pointless? Because if you read the rest of the Bible, the message of the Bible is the exact opposite. Life very much has a point. God has a point to all of this. God is holy and we are not. We are sinful and deserve death and hell. But God loves us and sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins. So believe in Jesus. Be born again. Be forgiven of your sins. Be adopted into God's family. And as an adopted child of God, go and do the family business. Go and do the mission that God has given us. That God the Father and God the Son gives us to do by God by the power of God the Holy Spirit, which is to tell other people who used to be like us, unforgiven sinners, to believe in Jesus and be forgiven. And someday, Jesus will come back and make all of this old, broken, thistle and thorn-producing ground and the rest of us as well renewed, new again, forever and ever and ever. That is the point of all of this. So what do we make of Ecclesiastes, which for 95% of it says that life is pointless? Well, it's the other 5% that says the 95% was wrong. There really is a point. So we have to understand all of Ecclesiastes in context. If you quote part of Ecclesiastes out of context, you'll get a lot of things wrong in life, right? It would be like quoting the Bible out of context in other ways. Uh, I think of the book of Job. Right? So in the book of Job, Job is is burdened with a lot of issues and then his friends come around and his friends and Job argue for chapter after chapter after chapter about a lot of things and a lot of the things that Job and his friends say is wrong, right? Uh, if you quoted the, de the times in the Bible when the devil is talking, <laughs> you'll, get, you'll get stuff wrong, right? That would be bad. Uh, suppose uh, you quoted the Bible uh, when Cain murdered his brother, and you said, well, uh, the Bible says Cain murdered his brother, so that must be okay, right? <laughs> Wrong, right? Or, or suppose, you know, th speaking of Christmas, that you quote the part, John read it for us earlier, where the angel comes and says, you will have a son, and you shall name him Jesus, right? Does that mean that every one of us <laughs> who had a son sinned by not naming him Jesus? Did Ryan and Madison, who just had a son, like sin by not naming his son, Jesus, their son Jesus, and named him Emmett instead? Of course not, because that's taking a quote totally out of context. God commanded it. We got to do it. Wrong. So anyway, we got to understand the scriptures in general and Ecclesiastes in particular in context. Now, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes belonged to a, a genre of uh, literature called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature tells us things that are generally true so that we can apply the principles to our lives. It's different from, say, God's moral law, which is absolutely true and explicitly true, so we must obey it. Right? It's different from, say, history, which is also explicitly true, so we must believe it because it really happened. 
Uh, wisdom is principles for life, but it doesn't necessarily promise that it will, with a 100% certainty, yield the result that it's talking about, right? It's just wise to follow wisdom. It's wise to do these things because God generally rewards wisdom uh, and thinking and doing things wisely with blessings. So, let's start with the first three verses of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? So preacher is the Hebrew word kohelet. Kohelet, uh, which after being translated into Greek turns into our English word Ecclesiastes. So we call the book Ecclesiastes, but uh, in Hebrew uh, it would be called kohelet. Kohelet, the preacher, is is identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So those of you who know your Bible, we all know the one who was king after David, who was his son, is Solomon, right? So this could be Solomon, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, right? Uh, son of David could be any one of his uh, de- descendants, and there were plenty of kings in Judah who were his descendants uh, who were king in, in Jerusalem. So it could be Solomon, it doesn't have to be. Uh, definitely part of Ecclesiastes, the, the, uh, the The experiences contained in there seem to be specifically from Solomon, but anyway, it doesn't have to be Solomon specifically. Now, Kohelet is writing from the point of view of someone who has been very successful. Okay? Very successful. Proverbs might be uh, written to somebody who uh, isn't successful yet, or maybe failing and being a fool, and so you got to have Proverbs. But Ecclesiastes is written from the point of view of someone who's being very successful. And the point of Ecclesiastes is that success, as we typically define it, isn't everything it's cracked up to be. You have to understand your success in its proper context with God. That's the point. Okay? So you contrast that with a lack of success. And that's not to say that Ecclesiastes doesn't have a message for all of us Um, who who are less successful. But again, you have to understand the context. All right, so vanity means pointlessness. Pointless or futile or meaningless or or vain, right? And when he says vanity of vanities, that is a way of emphasizing the fact that it's really pointless. Kind of like in in the temple, there's the holy of holies. And uh, Jesus is called the king of kings. So when you say vanity of vanities, it's it's the top vanity, right? And it's this rhetorical question, what advantage does man have in all the work which he does under the sun? Okay. Under the sun is a phrase that happens um, uh, a, a lot in Ecclesiastes. It, it basically just means like everywhere on earth, like it, it's comprehensive, right? This rhetorical question is basically meant to say that there, the answer is that there is no advantage. There's, it's pointless, right? So for the rest of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, Kohelet says that nature cycles endlessly, so it's pointless to try to do anything memorable because nature and no one else remembers anything that we do on this earth, 
right? Wisdom, chapter 2, is pointless. Pleasure is pointless. Possessions are pointless. So that brings us to uh, chap- uh, that brings us to uh, verse two eleven. Two eleven. Two eleven says, "Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. All that work is pointless and futile." Striving after wind. Striving after wind. I mean, that's even more pointless than a dog chasing his tail. Right? At least you can see the tail and it has, it's solid. Striving after the wind is pointless. No profit under the sun uh, means that there's nothing to be gained. Right? Uh, like I said, under the sun is a phrase that Kohelet uses dozens of times in the book. Uh, it's a metaphor that means anywhere and everywhere. Okay? So, what do we read so far? The words of the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. We're off to a bad start. So let's continue, um, what's, uh, let's continue reading some of the ways in which work and labor can be pointless. Uh, This is on your outline, the futility of work under the sun. And so we're going to think about uh, inheritance being enjoyed by someone else, stress, competition, envy, being a workaholic, and the fact that you can't take it with you, right? So one way work is pointless is that your inheritance is enjoyed by someone else. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18, thus... I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all of the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This, too, is vanity and a great evil. Okay? So the point is, labor all of your life to collect material wealth, and then it's pointless to leave it to the next descendant. Right? So king, king in Jerusalem leaves it to the next king, uh, especially, and this is kind of the salt in the wound, right? if you do it with hard work, wisdom, and knowledge, and skill, and then the next guy doesn't have any of those qualities. Just a gut punch. right? And in, so- in Solomon's case in particular, his son Rehoboam really was a fool. His unwise actions and his unwise words after his father's death and after he took the throne uh, caused civil war. And it led to the dividing of the nation into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom, which he uh, retained control of uh, in Judah, the southern kingdom. You can read all about that and and what he did in 1 Kings 12. 
So your inheritance is joined, enjoyed by someone else. Also, there's stress, right? Also, work leads to stress. So now we're going to read uh, verse 22 and 23. For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving in which he labors under the sun? Because all of his days, his task is painful and grievous. And even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. Now, anyone who has dealt with stress or anxiety at work can identify with this feeling, right? Just think about this. Lying awake at night, not being able to sleep, worrying. Or, or what might be worse is that you get to sleep because you're just so exhausted. And then at 2 in the morning, you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. Just thinking about stuff, right? And, it just, and then the cycle perpetuates because then you're dead tired at, at work all the next day and then you're, you can't think well, you can't operate well, you can't perform well. You collapse exhausted only to wake up at 2 o'clock again the next morning. Brutal, right? So, what, so labor is this too. Labor brings this stress. Now imagine if there wasn't a big picture to all of this, how demoralizing this would be. Okay? Okay. Let's skip over to chapter 4 in verse 4. And I wrote here competition. And I also want you to write on your outlines next to competition, envy. Envy. Okay? Chapter 4, chapter four verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Okay, okay so here we have the phrase striving after wind two more times. Uh, the point of this uh, few verses is that envy will sinfully drive us to outdo others. Right? Envy will sinfully drive us to outdo others. Uh, there's a saying, there's a saying that, is, that goes like this. Competition is God's way of tricking us into doing our best. Right? And there's a lot of truth to that saying. Right? And, and I would say uh, that healthy competition is in fact good. Right? Healthy competition is good. But ungodly or unethical or unfair competition is a problem. Right? And we have laws against some of that. Right? So anyway, being envious of your neighbor, right? being greedy, being covetous, God's law speaks against this heart con uh, condition, is bad. Right? And when it leads us to do evil things at work or in business, then that is sin, right? So uh, if the Lord wills, one of the future sermons that I have in this series is, is on the ethics of, of work and business. You know, how do we leave this place and then work ethically according to our Christian convictions in the workplace? Sometimes it's really hard to do that because the rules of business often seem to be very, very different from what we read in the Bible. Right? Okay. Verse 5 is a proverb. Verse 5 is a proverb, uh, you fold your hands and you consume uh, your own flesh. 
And basically what this means is that you're, you're lazy. Okay, so in the book of Proverbs, there's a couple of Proverbs that say, you know, the, the lazy person folds his hands. He just, he's just not working, right? He's not working with his hands. He's, he's folding his hands. And then what that, me, what that means is he ruins himself, right? Consumes his own flesh is, is the literal translation. And then metaphorically, what that means is that you ruin yourself by being lazy, right? So we do not want to be lazy. And then the, the proverb in verse 6 one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Now, this seems to be sort of like a counterpoint to both of those verses, which is, okay, so don't totally stress out about work, right? Two, two hands full of labor. Uh, you should actually have a balance, right? So God worked six days and then rested on the seventh day. We, too, should have one hand of rest and then one hand, um, uh, one hand that, 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 that has labor, right? Okay. So that's competition that leads to envy or envy that leads to ungodly competition. Right? The next point is being a workaholic. Now we have verse 7, same chapter, chapter 4, verse 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Okay, so there's a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor brother, and you're kind of wondering, what about wife and, and sisters? Well, this is, you know, ancient Israel, so it's patrilineal, so the, the inheritance goes to uh, your son, uh, and most of it goes to your firstborn son. And if you don't have sons, then it might pass on to your daughters in particular circumstances or goes to your brother. Okay? So that's what that part of it means. Uh, and God's law says that it is, it is godly to leave an inheritance and it is uh, ungodly not to. Okay? Um, God's law for the Israelites was to leave the family inheritance of land to your descendants, to your offspring. And according to Proverbs, it is a godly thing to give an inheritance. Uh, in fact, it is against God's law to sell your family's land. He, uh, he does make provision in his law to sell the land if your, uh, if your family situation is economically uh, very, very dire. So you can sell it, but if you have to sell your land because of hard times, God law, God's law provides a way for your relatives to redeem it back to the family. Okay? And in any case, all land, according to God's law, is supposed to be returned back to the original grantee every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. Okay? So God wants there to be an inheritance. But in this case, right, uh, it says, when those, sorry, uh, let's see. When, uh, it, in, that, in this case, um, there was a, a man that didn't have a son or brother. There was no end to all his labor. Okay? He was very, very greedy. He was a workaholic. His eyes were not satisfied. Okay? That's a metaphor for, for just wanting more and more and more. Right? His eyes were not satisfied. And then he never asked for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? In other words, he worked so hard that he wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. 
He wasn't en enjoying work itself, and he also wasn't enjoying the fruits of his labor, right? This reminds me of the man uh, from Jesus' parables in Luke 12 who built up a lot of riches. And he had a slightly different attitude, right? In Luke 12, there was a rich man who uh, built up uh, barns full of grain. And he said, now I can take my rest. And then he says, you fool. Uh, what the word that came to him was, you fool. Tonight, this very night, your life is required of you. You're going to die tonight. Our friend Roy Jernigan, the paraphrase might be, fool, you're going to die tonight. He was, uh, he was depriving myself of pleasure. Now, this is ironic, since Kohelet already talked about indulging in too much pleasure. Right? And this is the opposite error uh, that, that is talked about in these verses, not allowing yourself to enjoy any pleasure. God wants us to have pleasure. He does things for his own pleasure. He is a God of pleasure. He wants us to have joy. Right? He just wants us to have joy in the right way. So God is not a killjoy. He's the opposite of a killjoy. Uh, and he is a God that, that likes pleasure. He just, you know, but pleasure, like other created things, can become an idol. So pleasure should not be our idol. We should worship God and take pleasure in that. Okay. Our, next, uh, our next point is you can't take it with you. So now we skip a little bit over to chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. There's that phrase again. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost to a, through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Not in the wind. It's not windy when you're working. He's toiling for the wind. He's striving after nothing. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and great vexation, sickness, and anger. Okay, so I just spoke about leaving an inheritance and about how God wants the Israelites and he wants us to to leave an inheritance, it's a godly thing to do, right? But this man doesn't leave an inheritance. He squanders it through a bad investment, and then there is nothing left to support his son. For all we know, the son uh, needs to sell that land and then be redeemed later. It's very hard to redeem that land. You're in debt. It's hard to get out of debt. Uh, this, you know, he's, and he's saying he's, he's going to die, Right? Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die, right? He came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came, right? This reminds us of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, the curse is, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Okay? You are dust, and to dust you will return. So what is the point of all this? And also, you can't take it with you. So all of these things that you are building up, like the, the man in Luke chapter 12, all, all, you know, your life is demanded of you. Then who will enjoy the things that you have collected? Jesus asks. Right? There's another saying. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. 
There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Now, uh, it's worth mentioning that in uh, some pagan cultures, they certainly believe that you could take it with you, right? The ancient Chinese, uh, they were buried, uh, some of the kings were buried with their, uh, the emperors were buried with, with stuff, right? In Xi'an, uh, we have the terracotta warriors and a bunch of other uh, things, which, you know, is, is fun for archaeology, but, you know, the, the worldview behind that is, you know, he needed an army with him in the, in the afterlife. That's not true, okay? It's false, false religion. Uh, the Egyptians, right? The Egyptian pharaohs built tombs, so we have the tomb of King Tut, we have all these other tombs in the Valley of the Kings, we have the, uh, the pyramids, of course, right? Again, pagan cultures think that, yeah, you can't take it with you. The point is, of all of this, is that if we don't understand God's purposes behind our work, we will misunderstand the point of our work, right? It will seem fruitless, or it will seem pointless, or it will seem like we're striving after wind, it will seem like vanity, right? Now remember that 95% of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet purposely asserting uh, the wrong thing. And the reason for that poetically okay, is so that he and God speaking through him can teach us the right way to look at life. And that is where we turn in the second part of our sermon today. Right? The utility of work under God. Right? So we have the futility of work under the sun, but we have the utility of work under God. Now, life in general, and for our purposes today, work in particular, are futile if you look at them in the wrong way. But if you understand work correctly, work is very useful. It has a lot of utility. Right? Instead of futility, we get utility. The driving force, of course, behind life and work having a point is God. God makes life and work very rewarding, right? First of all, God, in his grace and providence, gives us, what? Satisfaction. Where is this? Okay, so the next point is satisfaction. And th for this, we turn back to uh, verse uh, 224. 224, okay? Now, recall that all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 23, uh, through verse 23, we read 22 and 23, uh, Kohelet has gone on and on and on about how meaningless life and work are. And then all of a sudden, in verse 24, he says this, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can enjo have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. And then he refers to the, the sinner part of it, saying this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Okay, so if you don't understand that life and work are from the hand of God, then life and work are going to seem pointless to you, vanity. But if you do understand this basic truth, then you can appreciate them. Right? We can appreciate them. So he's saying this, right? Uh, it, it's hard because he doesn't have much transition here, and it seems to be like the exact opposite of what he's just been saying, and it is the exact opposite of what he's been saying, but look at the, look at the verses. The thing that was missing before was God, 
And in verse 24, we say, I have seen that it is from the hand of God. That's what makes it good. Verse 25, who can eat, who can have, enjoy, who can have enjoyment without God? Rhetorical question, you can't. So enjoy it in the context of God. Okay? All right. Now, we should explain this verse 26. Um, the, you know, who a person who's good in his sight, he's given the good things, and the, the sinner, he, you know, he's going to give the, all of his stuff to, to the good person. So we want to understand this from the everlasting perspective, okay? The, the eternal perspective. The life to come, not necessarily uh, our mortal phase of life. Because here's the thing. There are no good people. There are no people who are good in his sight, right? There are only bad people. There are only sinners. We are all sinners. So there's only sinners who have been forgiven and sinners who have not been forgiven, right? So popular culture wants us to believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. There are no good people. There's only bad people who have been forgiven and bad people who have not been forgiven. So it's the good people, sorry, it's the bad people who have been forgiven who get to go to heaven and it's the bad people who have not forgiven, who have not been forgiven, that go to hell. Okay? So this might be, it might be better to understand this in the uh, eternal perspective, which is, okay, you're going to hell, you can't take it with you, so all of the things that you've worked for, like it all gets inherited by Jesus, and then Jesus gives it to his co-inheritance, his co-heirs, us, okay? those who have been forgiven. Okay? So you're good in God's sight, not because you are good, but because God counts you as good because you trusted in him. Just like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is how we are saved as well. We believe God, we trust in Jesus, and then it's reckoned to us as righteousness or goodness. Okay? The point is that labor is good and the fruit of labor is to be enjoyed. So then our next uh, our next point is that God also gives us joy. I'm trying to make this thing go. Okay, the next point is joy. We skip over to 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 12. Read 12 and 13. I know there is nothing better for them to, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good uh, in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Okay. So again, now we see some explicit recognition of God, and that's what makes it good. Now, in contrast to him saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Kohelet now says that the best thing is to rejoice and to do good. Okay, again, when you understand your work in the context of God, then eating and drinking helps you understand that your labor is good. This is joy and satisfaction. You know, there's nothing better than a cool glass of water after you've been out working hard, right? There's nothing better than a hot, delicious meal after you've worked up an appetite doing work. Okay, skip down to verse 22. Verse 22. Uh, I'm just taking selections because not all of uh, Ecclesiastes is about work but I'm uh, picking and choosing a few verses that are directly related to work. Verse 22, I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. 
for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Remember, I mentioned that Kohelet said that we are the same as animals. Animals live and die. We live and die. Life is meaningless. Uh, this is the next verse after all of that. So that's the structure of Ecclesiastes. 95% him saying stuff you don't want to quote out of context, and then 5% statements that make the contrasting point, the true point. And the point here is that there is happiness and joy in all our activities. Okay. All right, now skip to chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Okay, again, life is a gift from God. Enjoyment of life is a gift from God. And if God makes it so that you are rich, then enjoy it. It's a gift from God. Okay? It's very, very contrasting to all of the, the vanity of vanity stuff that, that we generally read in Ecclesiastes. This is, and when, he, when Kohelet acknowledges God, all of a sudden things change. Right? So this is how we understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, so there's wealth, and you should, if you have wealth, you've been granted wealth, God gives you the power to make wealth, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, by the way, if you want to read a whole chapter about how God gives us the power to uh, make wealth. So if you are wealthy, then, then you're allowed to enjoy it. Okay, this is, this is part of it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be generous and share your wealth. Right? You should. You should. But you're, you're allowed to enjoy it. Now, Here's a key question. Do you want to enjoy your wealth only here on earth during the few years that God has given you? Or do you want to enjoy your wealth forever and ever and ever? Right? If you want to enjoy your wealth, your riches, forever and ever and ever, remember we said you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. You can send your wealth, your riches to heaven so that you can enjoy it when you get there. Right? Last sermon, uh, not last sermon, but the last work sermon, uh, I mentioned that Jesus talked to the rich young ruler. And what did he say? Go and sell all you have and follow me and you will have riches in heaven. The rich young ruler didn't take that deal. But Randy Alcorn, contemporary of ours, Randy Alcorn, an author, says, listen, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Right? You can't take it with you. There are no hearses behind U-Hauls. Uh, sorry, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. But you can send it ahead. And how do you do that? How do you send it all ahead? How do you get those riches in heaven? How, uh, like for example, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, I advise you to uh, buy refined gold from me. He's not talking about the gold that we have right now. He's talking about gold in heaven. He's talking about heavenly riches. How do you do that? It's a whole other sermon. In fact, I've preached on it before. There's this uh, sermon called uh, Investing 101 According to Jesus. It's from uh, 2019. You can look it up uh, on our sermon archive if you're so inclined. Okay? So, send it on ahead. 
but you can enjoy some of it that you're allowed to do that. Right. The next grace that God lovingly and generously gives us is lifelong companionship. And again, just like I asked you to write envy there, you can just write next to that, marriage. Right? Okay, so skipping ahead to chapter 9. Skipping ahead to chapter 9, Kohelet writes a passage that talks about how everyone, whether a sinner or not, and we already mentioned that we are all sinners, will die. Okay, death is inevitable. Ten out of ten people die. But then he writes this, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Verse 10 goes on to say, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Okay, so enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Marriage. Lifelong marriage. Right? We say, till death do you part. Marriage is the only thing that if you do it right, it ends in death. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. I can't thank God enough for my wife, Jenny. Living with you is great. So fun. I love it. So good. Now, God wants us to enjoy marriage. Okay? Song of Solomon says it. The Proverbs say so. Genesis 2 says so. Adam sang a song about it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 says so. Ephesians 5 says that marriage is a picture of the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves us from our sin. Okay. So marriage is good. Marriage is a good thing. Okay. Uh, verse 8, let not oil be lacking on your head. That kind of reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Uh, verse 8 also, let your clothes be white all the time. This reminds me of Revelation where the white clothes of the people in heaven are their righteous deeds. I'm quite sure that's not what this means in, the, in this context, but it reminds me of it, right? White clothes, right? Verse 10 uh, reminds me uh, of when Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, uh, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Right? So we got to make hay while the sun shines. We got to do God's work during this lifetime because night is coming when no one can work. And so whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in other words, the afterlife, where you are going. We only have this life to do God's work on earth. The next uh, grace that God gives us is chances, paying off. Okay? Uh, let's skip ahead to chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. 
For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. What does this mean? It's interesting, right? It's actually kind of related to uh, chapter, uh, verse 4 right above it. Right? He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. That's an agricultural metaphor. The farmer who waits for just the perfect weather will never actually plant. And so if he doesn't plant, it's not going to grow. And if he doesn't grow, he can't sow. Okay? He'll never harvest anything. This is paralysis by analysis. You have to take your chances. The message of this is you should take your chances and trust that God in his providence will bring some opportunities, perhaps not all, but perhaps all, to fruition. Okay? This is one of the joys that God gives us in his grace. Isn't it wonderful when you work hard pursuing opportunities and then some of them pan out? It's great. Like, that's, it's cause for much rejoicing. Anyone who's gone through a job search knows this, right? You send out lots of resumes. You network with lots of people. You get some first-round interviews. Not all, but some, right? And some of those, not all, but some, turn into second-round interviews, right? They don't all pan out. You don't all get job offers. But at the end of the job search, hopefully what you have is one, or preferably two, so you can play them off each other, right? right? So that m maybe one or two job offers, right? Uh, students applying for colleges know this too. You work hard for years in school, studying, making grades. Some subjects you enjoy, some subjects you don't, but you apply yourself to all of them. You apply to a bunch of colleges. Some are stretch schools, some are safety schools, and then you see where you get in, right? And God in his grace lets you do that, right? Now, in a totally different context, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament also used an agricultural metaphor. He said, you know, one person plants and the other person waters, but it's God who causes things to grow. Right? Totally different context and, and different message. But, it, but the point is, uh, at the end of the day, it is God who causes uh, chances to pay off. If you don't understand that about God, then you will either despair when things don't work out, or you will become prideful and pound your own chest saying, it is my work that caused all these good things to happen. Right? You'll be prideful. Only by trusting in God do we have security knowing that God is gracious to provide for us. Okay. Which brings us to our conclusion. And this is the same way that Kohelet concludes his message as well. The very end of the book Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Okay, I don't know about you, but I read that and I think to myself, this is very bad news. Right? It's bad news. Uh, I know that it's bad news for myself because I don't fear God enough. I don't fear God enough. And you know how I know that? Because I sin. I keep sinning. I don't keep His commandments. That's not good. Keep His commandments. No one can keep His commandments perfectly because we're all sinful. That's really, really bad news. And it's also bad news because God is holy. 
God is perfectly holy, whereas we are sinful. He is perfectly holy, which means he has nothing wrong with him. Right? He is morally perfect. He is also omniscient. He knows all of our sin. Nothing can be hidden from God. He is also the judge as being both holy and omniscient. He is able to judge us perfectly. Everything will be, that is hidden will be uh, brought to judgment. Every act will be brought to judgment. Okay? It's not good. Not good news for us. Uh, he's also the creator. So he's the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to destroy us. Just like a potter ha- can take the thing that he made out of clay and start all over again. Right? He can destroy us. He's also omnipotent. He has all power. Right? He has the power to carry out his judgment as judge. He is also sovereign. So he has the authority to carry out his decisions and his judgments. And the punishment, because God is also just, is just. Okay? The punishment is everlasting, conscious torment in the lake of fire. Okay? And this is what we deserve, which is bad news. Okay? But there's also good news. There's also good news because God is also gracious. God is gracious and he forgives some. Not out of any merit. You cannot merit God's forgiveness, but out of his own grace only. God is gracious. And then, so when we take the combination of his omnipotence and also his sovereignty and also his grace, he knows the people that he is going to give grace to and save. And it's some, right? He has written those names in the book of life. Now, he's not obligated to give anyone grace, but he does. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. God is one God in three persons. God the Father, the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay? God the Father sent God the Son, the eternal Son of God, to take on another human nature, become a man. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He lived a perfect life without sin, a, sin, a life that we cannot live because we are sinful. And then he gave his life for us. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That was his work. He did the work. God has done the work. Okay? This is the good news. This is the good news. So we want to simply acknowledge that we should believe that God has worked for us. The, the message of the gospel is not do, 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 do. It is done. It is tempting and a mistake in a sermon to just preach what the Bible says to do, not in the context of what God has already done. Okay? Because there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, to earn God's merit. We, unlike other religions, Uh, Do not believe that when you work, 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 you can achieve a higher level of consciousness or nirvana or reincarnation or whatever. You cannot do that. The message of the Bible is the work of salvation has been done. We don't work. In fact, we cannot work in order to, to achieve salvation. The only thing that we can do for salvation is to believe and trust in God. Okay? We cannot keep His commandments. 
We cannot keep his commandments. And we can't keep his commandments in order to be saved. It's, that's impossible. But we can keep his commandments after we have been saved. Because the power of sin has been broken. God the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us against sin. He shows us our sin in our hearts. So when you feel that conviction of sin, that's the Holy Spirit and His ministry in you working. Okay? So now we are free from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' work. We are free from the power of sin because of the Holy Spirit's work. And that sets us free so that we can obey. So like the hymn goes, trust and obey, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. But it's the trust that comes first, and then the obey. Okay? And then he says this, fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. And I already said, I, I know I don't fear God enough. Now remember, there are no good people and bad people. There are only bad people who have been forgiven and bad people who have not been forgiven. Now, for those of us who are bad people who have uh, not been forgiven, you absolutely should fear God. Okay? The lake of fire is a fearful place. Judgment is coming. But while you are still here, there is time to repent. So you should come to Jesus and repent. He is gracious and powerful to forgive. Now, if and when you are forgiven, you no longer need to fear. Okay? Now, we do need to uh, continue experiencing a certain sense of fear, but it's more the sense of awestruck reverence. Awestruck reverence. We should never lose our sense of awestruck reverence for God. But we do not need to be abjectly afraid like those who are perishing. Those who experience God's saving grace do not need to fear. Right? It's Christmas. So, Mary, right? Mary, what did she hear from the angels? Do not fear. Joseph, what did he hear? Do not fear. The shepherds, what did they hear? Do not fear. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, angel shows up. What does he say? Do not fear. And then at the other end of his life, when Jesus had died and been resurrected, the women at the tomb were told what? Do not fear. Right? So we don't need to fear. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, without fear, knowing that God will help us in our time of need. So in this sermon, I've tried to answer from the Word of God through Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, what is the point of work, right? The short answer is, God gives us grace to experience pleasure from our work and the fruit of our labor. It comes from God, right? But lastly, I would like to leave us with uh, three positive motivations for, uh, of why to work. Uh, I will, uh, hopefully, if the Lord wills, develop these in uh, my next sermon on work, uh, but um, these are three motivations that I think should motivate us to do everything, not just work, but, but everything. But in any case, uh, we'll go through them here very briefly by way of conclusion. The three motivations of why to work are, they're on your sheet, um, in uh, increasing importance are, first of all, work for yourself, right? So why do you work? Well, you should work for yourself. You should work to feed, clothe, etc. yourself. Those are also gifts from God. Matthew 6, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said so. He's going to provide for you. But he also provides for your family. You should work to provide for your family. 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, 
children, kids, <laughs> but also, you know, heads of households and things like that. You got to work. You got to work and make income. Okay? If you don't provide for your own, that's not a good thing. So, so work for yourself. Provide for yourself and your family. Uh, second uh, important thing is uh, work for others. Be generous and share. Right? Be generous and share. We've talked a little bit about that in this sermon. Uh, Ephesians 4.28 says this. He who steals, okay, thou shalt not steal. I think we all know that at some level. He who steals must steal no longer, right? But rather, he must labor. You've got to work. Performing with your own hands what is good so that he will have share, uh, something to share with one who has need. So, Ephesians 4.28, don't steal, work, earn money, not just selfishly for yourself, so that you have something to share with others. Okay? That's motivation number two. Motivation number three, and the most important thing, most important motivation is work for God. Okay? Work for God. Work for God's glory. Right? God prioritizes his own glory above all else. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a perfect God, because he would be prioritizing something else above his own glory. So he himself glorifies himself maximally. And we too should glorify God. So the scriptures say, 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay? So that's, that's, our, that's why we do anything. So when, you have, when you're considering something, when you're considering something to do, when you're considering something to work, think about those three motivations in order from most important to the least important. God's glory, other people's good, our own joy and satisfaction. Okay? If you get those mixed up, you'll do things in the wrong order, you'll become idolatrous, that's a problem. But if you do God's glory, others' good, your own joy, you'll generally do things correctly. Okay? So, lastly, part of us declaring the good news of Jesus, which is part of our work, all of us as Christians, is a little meal that we share here at church, the Lord's Supper. We are currently celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus. Now, at the other end of his life, we celebrate his death. On the night before Jesus gave his life for us, on the night before his work was finished, he took the bread and he took the wine and he said that when we eat it, we remember him and we declare his death until he comes, when he will do more work for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preaching of the preacher, Kohelet. Uh, we thank you, God, that you have given us your son, the Lord Jesus, that we don't have to work to earn your favor. In fact, we can't work to earn your favor, but rather that he did it all. All to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it clean as snow. And we thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to regenerate our dead hearts, to convict us of sin, to point out our sin to us, and to empower us against sin. And we also thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that he has inspired the words that, that you want, um, that you have wanted through the ages to have been written down and preserved, and that he also illumines the word for us that we can understand it and live it. So, dear God, as we close this worship service and we 
offer up these prayers, we offer up our offerings, we take the bread and the, and the juice to commemorate your son's death, and we offer up these songs of praise and worship. We pray that all of these things that we do, all of this work that we do, will, be, will find favor in your sight. Thank you, Lord God, for the work you do for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.